people always saw me as this person who just pushed the whole race. Uh, and I probably did quite the opposite, you know, as much as I let the bike shake. I, I quite often wasn't pushing. It was only qualifying that I'd really push. I still made mistakes. It's just what happens. Um, but, yeah, I was always able to, um, to, to feel, you know, where I needed to be. I, I wouldn't say it's um, natural talent. You know, definitely you, you still need talent. Um, but I was sometimes more thoughtful than others of why I got my speed, where it came from, not just um, I'm going fast, I want it to do this, I need to know why. Um, and that's what allowed me to do it, especially, like I said, running laps by myself, um, you know, was where I felt most comfortable. My own, my own biggest rival kind of thing, you know. Uh, hello and welcome to the MotoGP podcast, Last on the Breaks, from myself, Matt Dunn and Fran Wilde next to me. Today is a very special episode. Um, we're going to keep the intro fairly tight because we have none other than Casey Stoner on the pod this week. Fran, what on earth we got coming up with Casey? Yeah. So much you want to ask, right? <laughs> There's a lot. Um, I mean, I think it's been a really great day in general. We're recording this on the Friday of the Algarve Grand Prix. Uh, there was a press conference he did earlier and then some more in-depth chat with us as well on the podcast. And it's just so great to get a true legend talking to us about all those things and in a more chill, kind of relaxed way, you know? It's a conversation, that's what we're about. Plenty of stuff, I think. Rivalries, racing, what he enjoyed, pressure, everything. Yeah, yeah. although perhaps not absolutely everything that perhaps you would want to ever ask Casey Stoner. We simply didn't have time for that, but bless him, he stayed a lot longer than I thought he we did. were going to get time with him. I mean, it's actually dark now, that's how long he stayed for. So, it genuinely is, um, yeah. <laughs> but a little, before we get going, um, I do want to give a shout out because he's only done a couple of other podcasts, I think, ever. Uh, and there was quite a famous one he did maybe a couple of years ago now uh, on, well, on Rusty's Garage, which covered a lot of, a lot of topics. So, do encourage you guys to go maybe listen to that after this after or before us, it. After please. Yes, uh, because some of the topics there he does cover more in depth and we didn't want to completely ask the same sort of things you might hear or read in his autobiography, um, but it might give some more context to some of the things you'll hear in this particular episode. One thing should probably explain to you all, we do mention seven years ago uh, from his first MotoGP title. <laughs> no, okay. He was in a championship called the Aprilia Super Teens. For those of you perhaps from a more international audience, that is a championship in the UK, which is for sort of up-and-coming young riders. Uh, I think it's still going, isn't it? But back in the I think day... it's coming to an end now, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's produced a lot of uh, young racers from, from the UK. Cal Crutchlow was in it, Chaz Davies, a, a little-known MotoGP commentator called Steve Day. Do you know yeah, that? that explains our roasting. <laughs> yeah. Steve Day and Casey Stainer genuinely did race each other yeah. in uh, said uh, Aprilia Super Teams Championship. So, but yeah that, yeah, that is like lower than, for example, the Red Bull rookies. And so the context of that question is he went from that level to Motor GP World Champion in seven years. So we do it's get into that wild. fairly quickly, don't we? Uh, relatively quickly. But basically, I think that's all you really need to know before we get going, isn't it? Pretty much, I think. If you're looking for an origin story, read his book. Yeah. Um, but if you're looking for a little bit more insight into what makes him tick, maybe a little bit, as a rider, as a competitor, as a person in some ways, uh, I think you're in the right place. So I hope you enjoy it. And thanks for joining us as ever. Casey I'm Stoner. Casey Stoner, yeah. On um, I mean, it feels weird to always go into these conversations without the intro, which we'll record after you've gone, yeah. to be like, oh, Casey Stoner's here. 
But welcome. Everyone will be expecting your voice from the title and the episode description. But it's a pleasure to have you here. And Thank you've you. had quite a busy day of media things. We're uh, just on the tail end of that. Hopefully, it's not going to be too <laughs> painful. Um, but yeah, it's been a few years since you were last here. You said Magello 2018, I think, was the last time. Have you enjoyed it, being back? We've seen a couple of pictures of you with Pekka and Jack yesterday, and you've been catching up with people. Is it nice to be back? It's fantastic, to be honest. Um, you know, as, as much as you know, life was hard when you were here at times, you know, so much of the paddock is family. Um, you know, I basically grew up here. Uh, know just about everyone in the paddock. You know, there's not too many new faces. There's some, but... Um, Sorry. <laughs> <yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> um, but there's so many people that I've, you know, I spent my entire career, um, you know, working alongside the same people and things like that. So it's been fantastic catching up with everyone. And, um, you know, considering I used to catch up with everyone once a year for it to be three and a half years almost, it's, uh, it's a long time and too long in my opinion. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been an absolute blast to be here. And, and uh, as much as the COVID situation has made things difficult, difficult for traveling and the fans and things like that, you know, we, we know we're missing the fans. Uh, we can't wait to have them back. But for me personally, it's been great um, standing out in the paddock, talking to some of the riders, some of the friends, mechanics, everything like that. Mm. It's been fantastic uh, to catch up with everyone. And, and, uh, no ring of people yelling, Casey, Casey. Exactly. Yeah, so, I, I understand. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's a lot more relaxing in, in that aspect. And, and seeing everybody else relax as well. They're not all hidden in garages and, and their trailers and things. It's... Uh, it's a lot easier to catch up with people, and it's been uh, for me. It's been fantastic. You should have seen it last year in Mizano. Last year we had one of the double headers, and there was nobody. I saw Rossi just going from one of the the offices in the team trucks to his actual garage, and just walked straight it, past me. I was about me. to say he was probably walking. Yeah, he, yeah. he walked, and I said, "I bet you've never done that walk before." And he went, "It's like another life." <laughs> and it's just like, how crazy is that? I mean, it is. It's, it feels like glorified Tesla at the time sometimes at that point. So yeah, it, it's, it is a lot easier as well. Like working here, Mizano is the best. Example because normally the paddock's so rammed yep. and you like it's actually easier for me to just run down pit lane than it is yeah. to try and get past people and then especially yeah last year it's like oh i can get there in the five minutes yeah. that it should take me it's it's also great right. in between uh, all the between the boxes and the trucks Normally it's always roped off and all the rest of it. That's and now you just walk yeah, straight through. A, I mean, um, I think Casey Stoner can duck under those ropes. Yeah, yeah, I used to <laughs> duck under and be running flat out, things yeah. like that. But um, no, it was, it's, it's just amazing. The people you're sort of coming across, it's just a lot more relaxed atmosphere. We and, should uh, say for the listeners though, we love the fans. I said oh, that yeah. without the fans, it's, it isn't the same. No. Yeah. Um, you know, the atmosphere here, you know, we, we're missing the fans yeah. terribly. You know. We've got some bus racing though. I don't know. That <laughs> happened <laughs> last time we were here as well. Just at like 6 p.m. there's a bus on the track. Like, okay. <laughs> Fair enough, doing some tours. Um, one thing I have noticed today in you answering questions is how much attention you pay to all three classes and everything that's going on. So, kind of want to ask you, like, what's your, what's your take on the last couple of years or so of racing? Uh, Since Magello 2018, please, yeah. race by race. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, crap, I've only watched the last two races when <laughs> anyone was coming. So, uh, no, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to keep up with sometimes um, because with my health issues and things like that, even for me to stay up late and, and watch it and then the next Time day. Time zone's it, it not hurts working me, with but you. It, yeah, yeah, it's not working with me and it, uh, I'm doing everything I can to sort of keep energy as, as much as I can. So, yeah, where the uh, when the race times are, it's not ideal, ideally suited to me. 
Um, so I normally record it and then go to watch it the next day, but then I wake up and check the results, you know, the, in the emails. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and I'm like, well, there's no point in, you know, I've seen it now, I've seen the results, um, unless something interesting, really interesting has happened. But uh, surprisingly, I've probably watched more Moto3 than I ever have. Like, I always watch it to a certain degree, but um, uh, it's on earlier than all the rest of them, so it's yeah. a lot easier to, to watch that. And, uh, you know... Pedro Costa is a phenomenon, isn't he? He's, um, you know, for his age to show the maturity he has and, and uh, I don't really see a weakness in his riding or his, his, you know, everybody's either not real good on the brakes or there's one aspect of their riding they're not great, but uh, I haven't seen too many weaknesses with him, so he's, he's been good to watch this year. But then there's Garcia as well, who's done a fantastic job. There's other couple of, another couple of um, young rookies who have done a, a great job at a few races, especially towards the end of the season. But, um, you know, there's definitely some hope coming out of Moto3 looking forward in the future. It is, yeah. I mean, I think it speaks to Pedro's class as well, the people he is beating. Like you said earlier about um, Valentino validating your achievements as well. It's kind of the same thing even in just the class of Moto3 and Moto2. Yeah. It's not easy to beat the guys who are coming second, third, fourth in those classes. Well, there's quite a few established riders there. Um, that, that really know what they're doing. So, yeah, to be consistently sort of beating them week in, week out, um, you know, it's, it's showing a lot for that class and, and where the talent is. So uh, it's always very difficult to judge where a talented class is. Um, it's a bit like when Mark was winning and dominating. You're, just, you, you're not sure, you're never sure when these guys step up if they're going to, you know, fit right into MotoGP and be quick or not because it's very hard to judge the competitors around them. So... Um, but it seems like, you know, Moto3 and Moto2 have some, um, some great competition at the moment. So uh, stepping up-wise, you know, it's, it's, uh, I see quite a bit of, you know, quite a few fast riders coming through. I was going to touch on this a little bit later on, but since we're kind of on say, the topic you're already... going to take that segue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was discussing you, obviously, with uh, Matt Burt, our colleague, and also Steve Day, uh, on the car on the Your way here. Your former Aprilia Super Teams rival. Yeah, exactly. very close competitor but, back but in Steve, the day. Steve did point out that, actually, from that year in Aprilia Super Teams in the UK, it was seven years before you emerged GP World Champion. That rate of progression is obviously astronomical, but as a commentator like Moto3, talking to a couple of the guys fairly frequently, there seemed to be... A real keenness to progress just as sort of quickly as that. They're like, oh, my rookie year, I'll, um, I'll, I'll try and find my way. And by the end of the year, I want to have a podium and, and wins. And then next year, I'm going to fight for the title. And then yeah. I want to go to Moto2 in yeah. my third year. What do you make of that sort of ambitious progression? Because you were anom- an anomaly. I mean, I'm, I'm always one for setting your goals high. Um, I understand people that just like to set one goal at a time. Uh, let's say before I got to to Grand Prix at all, um, you know, I was quite sure I could be a world champion. Um, not overly confident or cocky about it, but, you know, that's, that's where I was heading my whole life. That was my goal. Um, I was going there to make it into the big class and see if I can win a world championship. Now, my first year in Grand Prix, you know, that, that nearly ended it for me. Um, my engineer that year was difficult to work with. He saw me as just a young kid that didn't know anything and, mm-hmm. and, and didn't make it easy on me. And I had a really, really tough year. I got straight into 250 class as well. Now, at that time, I'd only road raced ever for two years. I did super teens, then I did British Championship, and then I was in World Championship 250s, already in the second category, wow. one step from MotoGP. Yeah. It was the wrong way to go, but we, we had no options. I didn't even have a good ride in, in the European Championship. For an Australian, especially at that time, there, there's just no availability. So Lucio Cecanello gave me that opportunity, and, and we took it with both, with both hands. 
but that year um, really saw me uh, have a big reality check and go like I don't think this can happen you know I've, I've never been that optimistic guy uh, I'm not pessimistic um, but I'm not the optimist either I'm a realist and I got there and went you know this is going to be really hard I don't I don't know if I can ever you know win a race let alone a championship how funny um, it's crazy now when you're sat here like you know but that was that was a tough time in my life I was struggling um, with more than just on track off track as well and uh, you know that was that was really tough so the next year, I had a fantastic engineer, uh, Massimo um, Biagini, Branchini, um, and he was he was fantastic. He uh, he really helped me through the whole process, taught me how to read data. Him and Lucio really helped massively, and, and I learned a lot that year. And then I didn't necessarily get back on track to that. You know, I, I think I can you know win a world championship, but all of a sudden it's like, all right, I'm I'm not completely useless. I can do something here. <laughs> And, uh, so and it's just point, funny because of who you are now. So yeah. it's like, oh, I'm not completely useless. Like, no, very much not. So, yeah, I, I understand, um, you know, maybe setting goals that are sometimes too high, but you may as well set them high and, and um, you know, and have something to move towards rather than set all these little goals that you achieve and then move forward and achieve. But at the same time, you need to be realistic. If you need to adjust your goals, adjust them. Yeah. Um, but, you know... I had big goals set before I arrived to, to Grand Prix. I had to readjust them a little bit, but then I still ended up achieving them. So it was, um, I don't mind seeing people that, you know, have those sort of goals set. Maybe rushing through the classes, when I was coming through, it was like frowned upon almost. Everybody was like, no, you've got to stay in Moto well, 125s until you win. And then you go to 250s and you've got to stay there until you win and then go up. So for someone like, like you who's actually much stronger, the further up you go, it's a bit of a different equation, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. So the opportunity wasn't there for me. Things didn't work out. I couldn't win the, uh, the lower category. Um, I gave the, the, the mid category a good race with Danny, but then I had the chance to go to MotoGP and you're not going to throw that away. So mm -hmm. I jumped straight up, but I got frowned upon a lot for it. You know, you're going up too early. You need to win, you know, the lower categories before you move up. Um, and then in my second year in MotoGP, we won the championship. So uh, it kind of turned everybody's theory upside down on what you should do uh, oh, so it's before your fault. moving up. Uh, basically, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say what's wrong or right. You could come from Moto3, you can go straight to MotoGP and do well. It all depends on the rider, the situation. Um, it's very hard to sit there and, and, you know, dictate or say what should or shouldn't happen. It's very difficult. Can, can I ask you then, um, being in the paddock, obviously less people around, you are able to go and chat to some Moto3 riders. I don't know if you have already yet. Yep. Some of these Moto3 riders who idolise you, I'm assuming one of them would want to ask you, what's it like being a MotoGP world champion, one of the greatest ever? What would you tell them? Um, they probably wouldn't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, very difficult to explain what it's like. I mean, for me, especially in 2007, I don't think I really enjoyed it um, because I'd had so much pressure from family and from everything else to get there. Uh, even my races, I, you know, I never really enjoyed winning the races as much. I always got just relief out of it. I was just relieved it was done, the weekend was done. Um, I, I learned to enjoy it a lot more later in my career. So my last couple of years, you know, I, I did enjoy my victories and things like that. but. Um, but yeah, to be honest, I put a lot of pressure on myself to get things done. I didn't like making mistakes. I probably 
I didn't like making mistakes more than I liked winning. So um, that, was a, that was a bigger hit to me than what winning was. Um, I've always been not so much a perfectionist, but along those lines that I want everything to be well. So even if I won a race, if I made mistakes, I wasn't happy. Mm. Um, Have you chilled out a little bit with that? Oh, uh, I believe so. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've been forced into it. Uh, I can't do things as well as I used to anymore. And, um, you know, with my physical limitations, it's just, yeah, it's sort of I've had to change my, my goals, let's say adjust them again um, but yeah it, it was it was always hard for me to, to take any kind of mistakes and, and uh, a lot more than I enjoyed winning okay. well that's interesting as well because we, we had Juan Mir on a couple of races ago and he said he although he's Spanish so technically uh, technically from the outside you more expect him to have like support to fall back on you expect it to be a bit easier than obviously mm -hmm. Australia you put so much into that not gamble but all eggs in one basket to try and make it to, to where you, you got to. Uh, but for Juan, he also said like he's not got any like family money to put into it. Every single year, he had to race to win the championship or do enough to get to the next step and that he didn't kind of learn to enjoy that either. Did you kind of feel like that on the way up as well? Because obviously it is such a huge commitment from you and from your family and everyone to move to Europe and yeah, just turn up in the UK and it's like, right, we're gonna, we're gonna get to MotoGP world champion status, but it seems like a long road there as well. It's a very long road there. Um, we, we never had money, even in Australia, we did the cheapest form of racing, which was dirt track. Um, even to go road racing, it cost us a fortune. We did the Aprilia Super Team Cup because that was the cheapest form of racing we could do. Um, you weren't attracted we... by the level of competition from the likes of Steve Day. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, we, we went to the UK because it was the only place we could actually go and race um, through my grandparents who were British, through Ride of a Boat. Dad had a, uh, got a British passport, etc., etc. So um, as much as I'd like to say I went there for the competition, I went there because it was <laughs> our only option. Uh, Australia wouldn't let me race, so... Um, oh, was that an age thing, right? You, no, it wasn't an age thing. We were allowed to ride, but you needed to be a oh, member of a club. Ah, okay, sorry, yeah. And so there was only one club, and it was run by the parents of the kids I'd raced my whole life in dirt track, and they just point blank said, no, we're not letting you... Uh, not letting you beat our children. Not letting you, yeah, enter. <laughs> so, um, I mean, they're the ones that pushed us to go overseas, and, you know, realistically, it's the best thing that ever happened to us. It was a harder road. It was a very hard road. Um, but yeah, I've, I've often used things like that as my, my motivation as well. Um, throughout my whole career, I've been sort of squashed or, um, you know, people think a lot less of me than, than what, you know, we believe we are. And it's been, you know, a long, hard slog. There's only a couple of people that really believed in us, one of which was Alberto Vagani with uh, Nolan. They were our one and only sponsor. Um, when we came into the championship, we were very, very appreciative to Nolan because without them, we didn't have the money to, you know, even just get the motorhome to the races or anything like that. Um, so without him, it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to do those championships. So uh, without the support in the early years, and you know, as much as for for Jan, it was you know a very difficult situation as well with me. Um, in Europe, you're always going to get more support than an Australian in Europe. Nobody could give a damn about an Australian in Europe. They're like, why would we sponsor an Australian when we can sponsor another Spanish or Italian or yeah, yeah. something like that? It's, it was hard work. Um, 
So, yeah, it was very hard for us, except for a couple of people that always gave us support. Lucio Cecchinello was fantastic in the early years as well, um, you know, giving us a, a you know, decent package to ride on. And, um, you know, a lot of people in those early years, which we just got to thank. So without them, you know, we never would have made it through at all. Even scraped by, we, we just couldn't have done it. Amazing. I heard that, um, that story about the, uh, the club championship in your uh, podcast you did with Rusty's Garage. Yep. We'll recommend people to go and listen to that first because I think that's, that's a real great sort of opener on, the way you on said your story. First, it's like pause now. Yeah, don't pause well, now. The kid do, yeah. <laughs> um, Stay one, with us. One thing I did hear in that which really intrigued me was you talking about Mick Doohan and your respect for him, your admiration for him. And if you were able to carry on your career to win five world titles to equal his record, you wouldn't win a sixth. Can you explain that a little bit more for us? Um, Mick has been... Uh, you know, not just an idol, but he was who I based my, my entire career off. Um, what he was able to achieve after his incident, for me, still to this day, no one's even come close. So everybody's talking about Valentino and all these other uh, people because of, uh, let's say, numbers and, and all those sort of things for being the GOAT. But in my opinion, to go and do what Mick did after an injury that he had like he had, no one even comes close. Um, to the domination and everything he was able to achieve. So he's, um, he's always been a, a beacon for me that, um, you know, there's always someone with a worse situation than you. You've, you've got to keep that whole never give up attitude. Uh, and that's something I think Mick had extremely, extremely uh, tough mentality. And even the way he trained, he just worked harder than everyone around him. So even if he wasn't the most talented on the day and, and someone else had a bit of pace over him, he just never stopped grinding, never stopped working and, and such a great attitude to have. So he was ruthless, you know, he did whatever he had to do. And um, so him being that light for me, I suppose, from my whole career, I, I wanted to be like Mick Dillon. So I didn't want to be better than Mick. You know, so many other people are like, I want to go and beat this record and beat that record. It was never about records for me. Um, if it was, I would have kept racing. You know, I'm sure I could have gone a lot further up the ladder, but it wasn't about that. So if I had, you know, a chance in the ideal world to, um, to win five championships, there was clearly no way that was going to happen. But if there was, then, yeah, I wouldn't have gone uh, more than that. That would have been my, my way of ending it. it. It struck me because I don't honestly think, actually, if we spoke to every other rider in this paddock, I'm not sure any other rider would have a kind of perspective like that, to be honest. I mean, it could completely be wrong, but it seems quite unique. Um, unique or, or stupid, I'm not sure. <laughs> no. But I, I think I honestly don't see that in the paddock either because I'm the kind of person that when the, um, the, the tarmac runoff areas came into to Grand Prix, I'd penalise myself. So I remember I was in a race in Catalonia and I ran wide ran across the first chicane in, in Catalonia and backed off and let people pass and then went. I didn't just keep my place or anything like that. I lost positions on purpose um, because that's where grass and gravel should be. That was me giving myself a penalty. Mm. Um, as much as everybody's going to say that was a stupid thing to do, you know, that's, I'm going to sleep at night, fine, you know. But yeah. nobody these days, they're all just like, no, I'm going to do everything for myself. Um, there's no... There's certainly no self-penalising. Like nobody, <laughs> not many people in this paddock would uh, would be very good at the game of golf, having to um, you know have an honest scorecard and things like that. I don't know. Could ask Sam Lowe's about that. Maybe. <laughs> I said not Actually, everyone. Yeah, yeah. I said there's a lot, but not everyone. Um, it, it's that kind of thing. And 
people are just okay with doing everything and then they put their arms up like, what did I do wrong? It's like, well, you clearly went outside of the track here and gained an advantage, you know, yeah. but they don't see anything wrong with it. They don't see what they did wrong. I'd love to just have uh, you as like the stand-in steward for an hour and just they all come <laughs> in and you're like just it. like, you clearly know what you did. <laughs> be like Super Sport 300 here, in case you would red flag it, pull them in and have a chat with everybody. Do I need to slow-mo it and then circle the area that you ran? You know? That is, that's interesting though as well, because I was, yeah, in your press conference earlier, one thing you said is that you prefer qualifying almost, because that's when you leave everything on the line. Yeah. And it seems really interesting, like you're super old school, in the most positive sense of that with those things like you want it to be like walking that line not like to make it more dangerous or to take more risk that's not about that kind of thrill that some people often talk about but like the harshest challenge that you can try and do as best as you can yeah and then you said that it's qualifying where you felt that was where you kind of got that the most in the sport which is interesting because there's always this like oh pure racing or back in the day it was this it was this yeah but for you, it's something different. I don't know, it's not really a question, just like, if you could please... Uh... <laughs> well, for me, my, my biggest rival is me. Um, I, that's why I never really looked at other people and other riders. This is why I was able to ride different bikes and get the most, I believe, much as I could anyway, out of different bikes. It's because I never looked on the other side of the garage. The grass was never greener. Um, I have what I have, this is what I've got to work with, and, and I'm my own competition. Um, that's why I never really ever needed uh, my teammates' data either. I mean, early days with uh, checking Owen in 03, I would have used his data. Um, Loris, in the early part of Ducati, uh, he was good to go through and, and work a little bit. And then Danny Pedroza, who was one of my biggest rivals, being his teammate was, was a big strength for me because I got to use his data a couple of times. But generally, I don't need it because I know where I need to go faster. I know why I need to go faster. Um, and that's why I was always in and out of the box rather than doing lap after lap. It's like, no, I know what I need, how to get there. We just need to do the best job we can. We're set up for that weekend and, and see if we can get it. So I was always my own biggest enemy. Um, so I didn't ever need to worry about, you know, what everyone else was doing, what everyone else's thoughts were. Um, I just had to get the most out of myself and, and sort of, you know, that's why I was able to do it. That seems like a lot, quite a high level of self-awareness back then, even though we are literally talking about you at the height of your career as a 23, 24, 25-year-old. Um, I'm 27. I like to think I'm a little bit self-aware. But then also, <laughs> I didn't live the life of a motorcycle racer from a very young age. Do you think you had a lot of self-awareness back then? Um, I think I always did, because even I remember when my dad used to say, um, you know, he'd want me to say I'd get a can of Coke or I'd get some mollies or something if I hit a lap time on dirt track. Mm. I'd go around until I hit it, but I always knew when I got it. Like, I didn't have a lap timer on my bike. He didn't show me any lap times or anything, but I'd know exactly when I got that lap. Um, wow. So I've always been aware of where my speed is, where I'm carrying it. Um, I've always had a feel for those sort of things. So... Um, I've always done well on circuits where there's lots of line options. So when you've got a circuit where you don't, let's say, go curb to curb, I like to call them curb to curb circuits, which is just you break on the curb, you go and hit your apex and you exit to a curb. Um, that's more simple to do. People find their way a lot easier because they've got something to measure off. Um, they've got points to measure. Whereas when you've got to hit mid-track points, like, say... Um, 
Bruno, Philip and things like that. I always found myself to be very good at circuits like that, um, even Saxon ring, because there's no, there's no point to point. It's all yeah. sort of mid-track sort of stuff where you've got to find where your compromise is. Um, so that's why I was always able to go out. I never ran laps behind anyone. I never used someone as a, as a, um, as a rabbit, basically, to, to get my pace. I always knew what I wanted out of it, and that's why you always saw me go out last behind nobody, always running laps by myself um, during practice sessions because, yeah, I generally knew what I needed. I knew how to get it. It's just a matter of getting the right setup and then getting myself to, to do the job. So um, that's sort of what I worried about. And I see too many riders these days constantly trying to get toes. They're constantly doing things and they're not, they're not concentrating on what needs to happen. What they're doing is just making themselves better at following. Um, and for me, that's why I was good at leaning races because I knew exactly where I needed to hit and what parts I needed to hit. I didn't need a rabbit to, um, to I actually generally got worse when I was following people. Really? Um, Distracted? Yeah, they're, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're in my way. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, now so, that is a great clickbait yeah. quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it probably is. Oh, shit. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I'm not able to see my, my yeah. points that I want to see. Uh, but that's why I was very good at leading races and, and even if I wasn't pulling away, I, was, I could still stay in the lead quite mm -hmm. well. Um, because I knew and I felt where people were, I felt where they were fast, I knew where they thought they were going to be quicker than me, um, so I could cover those points or break a little later so they, they had no chance or get a better exit so then they would have less chance to overtake. There's lots of ways you don't need to you know, win races from behind, you can do it from the front a lot of the time as well. Does that come under the bracket of, uh, do you think, your natural talent or things you learned, picked up along the way? Um, a little bit of everything. Um, People always saw me as this person who just pushed the whole race. Uh, and I probably did quite the opposite, you know, as much as I let the bike shake. I, I <laughs> quite often <laughs> wasn't pushing. It was only qualifying that yeah. I'd really push. I still made mistakes. It's just what happens. Um, but, yeah, I was always able to, um, to, to feel, you know, where I needed to be. I, I wouldn't say it's um, natural talent. You know, definitely you, you still need talent. Um, but I was sometimes more thoughtful than others of why I got my speed, where it came from, not just um, I'm going fast, I want it to do this, I need to know why. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what allowed me to do it, especially, like I said, running laps by myself, um, you know, was where I felt most comfortable. Wow. My, own, my own biggest rival kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Right, cool. I, I enjoy this. Okay, there's one other thing we have to ask you about in a slightly different manner to how you asked about it in the press conference, because what you said in the press conference made me think about this. You said, obviously, you've got one of the most famous one-liners of all time, and you said earlier that by, like, the next day, you're like, you're not really thinking about that. It's not really part of your life anymore. You've moved on. Obviously, it was you and Valentina at Hareth, and you said, ambition outweighs your talent. Mm -hmm. That year, he wasn't particularly your rival for the crown. You just reset, and you're focusing on who you're going to actually need to beat next time out. Do you feel like now it's kind of funny or is it annoying when there's this like one flashpoint moment that everyone's like, oh, he's the guy that said this? Is it like uh, Bon Jovi touring a new album and then everyone wants living on a prayer and you're like, no, I've written all these great songs, actually. <laughs> um, no, because people are always going to, you know, get hung up on certain points and, um, you know, everybody's always bringing up um, Laguna Seca, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. <laughs> um, people are bringing up that. It really doesn't matter. It's all just part of the career, it's part of the way it went. Uh, whether it's good or bad, you've, you've got to go through those, those times to, to learn. If 
you don't go through the bad times, you don't really learn anything. So you've got to have, it's like mistakes. Uh, if you make a mistake at the front of the race, you crash, you've got to learn from your mistakes. Um, so yeah, whether it's good or bad, you're always learning from those situations. And the only thing that really affected me about that uh, particular moment was that, you know, it, it felt like the championship was going to be gone. We just lost a massive chunk of points to Jorge, and that was, that was you know, detrimental on a guy who doesn't make mistakes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was going to be always an uphill battle for the rest of that season. So we had, to, we had to go back to work because you've always got to keep that one mistake in your pocket. The mistakes happen. So after that mistake was made for me, then I didn't have that one yeah, in the bank. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, oh, great, you know, I, I don't have that chance to make a mistake now. Um, I've got to be, I, I can't take those risks like I maybe would have. I've always got to be in reserve. Um, but luckily, not too many races down the track. We got back um, very close to Jorge, and then Jorge made the mistake. So that kind of equaled us out. Uh, and then I could actually relax a little bit for the rest of the season and, and sort of ride like I wanted to. That moment is kind of etched into MotoGP, and I think even sporting, like folklore almost, that kind of thing. Um, I will say now, though, because we'll, um, I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you from some fans, but yep. one of the thing I do have to ask, because I'd hate myself if I didn't, the other aspect about you and MotoGP folklore now, the modern debate, Casey Stoner versus Marquez, it's the thing they talk about down <laughs> the pub. All I want to know is, are you as sort of fascinated about what could have happened if you had stayed, et cetera, et cetera, than everybody else, or do you not, you're not really bothered? Not really, because, again, people try and create these massive rivalries. Um, and for me, it was a rivalry weekend by weekend rather than year by year. Mm. Um, you know, my, my biggest rivalries was with Danny and Jorge. You know, they were, over my career, that was who I fought with my entire career. Yeah, that's career. true, in terms of I numbers mean, and time. Damn, and, yeah. I, I mm. spent a lot of time <laughs> on podiums with them guys and being beaten by them and beating them, so... Um, you know, Jorge and Danny were, were by far my biggest rivals. They were, they were tough work. Um, week by week, one day it might be Danny, next day it might be Jorge. Um, you know, when Valentino was in the Yamaha, it was Valentino. So people always tried to, to put these big rivalries together, but they weren't there for me. Um, you know, myself and Valentino definitely had a prickly relationship at some points. But, um, you know, my rivalry was whoever it was with on that day. Um, Does that help you as well not take it home? If you um, have that mentality, do you I think? always kind of took it home, but not so much the rivalry or getting beaten. It was like, okay, where did I go wrong? Okay. Um, but I said I was that kind of perfectionist that even when I won races, if it wasn't right, I still wasn't that happy. And that's where people saw me as, you know, this whinging git. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, it's just I expect a lot of myself. Um, so if I didn't perform as well as I could have, um, then yeah, I wasn't overly happy with it. And I think more people need to be like that. Maybe not to the degree that I was, um, but too many people are uh, happy with results these days that, you know, that stops that, those high goals, that stops, um, you know, you where you could get to. In the sport or do you mean in general? I think in general. Okay. Um, I think a lot of people, um, there's a lot more sort of, let's say in some ways, there's a lot more opportunities for people these days. Um, and they sort of get things a little easier. So therefore they don't set goals quite as high. They're like, no, I'm happy where I am. Um, whereas I said, those higher goals are sometimes good. You, you, you never know where you could get to. Um, so it's always nice to set a high goal. Be realistic, sometimes it's possible, sometimes it's not. 
you know, when I was young, I had five world championships in my head, but uh, it wasn't possible. And I'm still happy with my career, you know, I'm still uh, very happy. And that's why I took things race by race rather than year by year. And still in many people's minds, to a lot of your fans, you are one of, if not the greatest of all time to ride a motorcycle. So not too bad, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's hard to think back then. I was, um, again, I'm just really, really happy with, with my career. I always sit there and you can go, coulda, woulda, shoulda. But I, I'm always, um, I always come to the conclusion that you know there's nothing else that I'd, I'd do because everything that happened and everything I did got me to the point I am today. Uh, and I've learned a heck of a lot. And um, you know, yeah, it might have changed my history, might have changed my path. But considering you know you're happy where you are, then things couldn't have gone much better, I suppose. Quick final question, shall we? Yes. Very quickly, because we don't want to keep you for too long. That's yes, we'll let anytime. you go. It is literally getting dark. <laughs> we can promise it's just an earlier sunset rather than like 11 p.m. now. Um, so the first one is our classic that we're going to compare everyone's answers at the end of the season as well. Which three people, dead or alive, anyone in history, would you invite to a dinner party? We will accept members of your family if necessary, <laughs> but... <laughs> Probably Michael Jordan. Cool. Um, Mick Dillon, of course. <laughs> uh, He's probably already had dinner with Michael Jordan at some point. <laughs> I haven't, but that'd be good. Um, I've already had dinner with Mike Schumacher, so I won't put him down for that. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe Tiger Woods. Interesting, uh, right? Yeah, very cool. A very no, sporting just, dinner. Yeah, because, I mean, they're incredibly elite and so far above uh, everyone in their sport. So it would be incredible to see. I mean, we've, we've been fortunate enough to have um, the Jordan documentaries, which were, were fantastic to watch. Um, so it was very interesting to watch the way he went about things and, and how he got things done and what he expected of everyone around him. Um, so we get a little bit of an insight, but you know, nothing's more, you know, for straight from the horse's mouth sort of thing. It'd be great. Awesome. Okay. That's cool. So next question from uh, Matt Polanski on Twitter: Which track, not currently on the MotoGP calendar, would you like to go to? It can be from your career or here in the present moment. Hmm. Not currently on the calendar. I've got kind of a, um, a trick answer, but I'd go Assen. The old one. The old one. <laughs> Fair. The Very old nice. one with all the, uh, with all the banking. I mean, there was, there was no other track like it. Yeah, um, yeah that, was, that was good fun to ride. Uh, as much as it was a little bit loose because it was straight to grass, there was no real curves there. Um, <laughs> no pumps of track limits there. Yeah, exactly. At least it kept everybody on the track. <laughs> Um, yeah. But yeah, some of those corners with the banking was just unreal and it's something we just don't have anymore and it's disappointing. Um, they, were, they were great to ride with banking like that. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of on the calendar, but it wasn't. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a fair answer. Uh, hey Mike Falcone wants to ask, who helped you get where you are that we don't really know about or don't hear about too much? Paul Feeney. Um, he was my first sponsor in Australia. Uh, and, and again, without him, a lot like Alberto Vagani with Nolan, um, you know, he helped me with a, a few small sponsors and things like that um, back when I was doing dirt track in Australia. So 
He's my first sponsor. Um, his son Brock Feeney is actually going to be in V8 Supercars next year, driving oh, cool. for the Red Bull Triple Eight team. Um, so, yeah, it's really good to see um, you know his son come through and do that. He's a very good kid and he's got a lot of talent. So um, that'll be interesting. But yes, Paul Feeney was a, a huge part of, of uh, my early days. Awesome. Uh, Chris H on Twitter yep. wants to know what era or decade would you like to time travel to? And as for the last question as well, I'd probably say Ian Newton. Okay, okay. cool. We're Pretty thinking time, so, yeah. <laughs> um, What age time travel to? I'd probably say the Midwest sort of days. Um, there was no phones or anything like that. It was um, out the Wild West, all that sort of thing. So. Um, you know, I love working on farms, all that sort of thing. As much as it was a very difficult time and, you know, the medical supplies weren't <laughs> readily available and all that, um, just the rawness of it is something that, you know, I still enjoy to this day. So I, would, I, I like the fact that there's less complications and um, more just sort of getting out, getting the job done each day. And um, yeah, I'd say probably that, that era. That's good. And then the final one um, is Team Japan GP's question. What is your personal or professional motto? Or what has it been? Is this something you kind of come back to? There's kind of two. Um, of course, the old never, ever, ever give up, um, no matter what. And another one that I basically came up with myself is um, you can only do what you can do and you cannot do more with, then you cannot do more than that. And it was a way for me, I used to suffer from a lot of nerves before races. So I'd, I'd feel really sick and, and, not, uh, and not do well before, before the race. And the better I could do at the race, the more nervous I got. And in the last couple of years, I learned how to deal with it a lot by basically sticking to that motto. You cannot do, um, sorry, you can only do what you can do and you cannot do more than that. Basically, it's me telling myself that, hey, I'm gonna go out there. I've already done the prep. I've already done the work. I can only do the best I can. And whatever happens, whether I crash, whether I win, whether I lose, I can only do my best and, and be happy with that. Um, and it's something that, you know, helped me live with disappointment because like I said, I, I never liked the mistakes. The, the mistakes is what ate at me. Um, if I lost a race from a mistake or I crashed out of a race because of a mistake, I really, I, I really struggled to um, get over things like that. So that sort of motto helped me um, to understand that I've, uh, as long as I do the work, um, you can be happy with what you've done. Awesome. Okay. Great answer. Thank great you so answer. much for your time. No yes, problem. thank you. Really we'll, it. we'll let you go and uh, be free again. That was great. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Thank you. Awesome. Some of that. Really, uh, really good to see you again. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, hope you enjoyed that. A deeper dive into Casey Stoner's kind of mindset in some ways and a nice, chill, relaxed chat. Personally speaking, we were quite nervous before this one compared yeah. to others because like people like our recent guests, sort of Juan Mir, Fabio Quattararo certainly. Last year, yeah. You yeah, we like you've been around them a little bit more when you've worked here a while. Casey obviously, not been a rider for quite no. a while now, so it's like Okay, hi, nice to meet you. So uh, nice tell me you, legend, that... how your brain ticks, please, <laughs> yeah. immediately. Yeah, uh, nice to meet but... you, guy that I like idolised as a kid watching yeah. MotoGP. <laughs> you know, uh, I remember watching things like that famous phrase live. I remember watching his retirement press conference live. So uh, hopefully we didn't come across too nervous, but I think we, uh, we got out of him what we wanted to 
personally, like, I came into that just asking him exactly what I want to know from Casey Stoner, basically. <laughs> yep, I feel you. And I think as well, yeah, I feel like we, yeah, I think it was a valuable conversation. Sorry. And hopefully it goes some way to those who aren't converted to uh, understanding a little better um, someone who's undoubtedly one of the greats, I yeah. think, of the sport. Absolutely. So thanks for joining us. We, we didn't have a question of the week this week. No, we? so I think just, just enjoy Casey, isn't it? Yeah, just <laughs> did you enjoy the podcast? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the question. Um, thanks for joining us. And Next time is the last episode of the year, isn't it? And hopefully it's another legend, um, one who was mentioned in this one. Yes. Is that a good enough spoiler? Let's see. See you next time. Ciao for now. Yeah.